On this episode of Waterflying, we discussed the legendary Cessna 185 Skywagon seaplane. You are listening to Waterflying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the waterflying community. Climb aboard! We're about to start today's episode. Well, welcome back to Waterflying. This week, we're celebrating Thanksgiving, and I cannot imagine a better way to start off the holiday than speaking to one of our SPA field directors about his experience as an owner and operator of the legendary Cessna 185 on floats. You know, here at SPA, we have so much to be thankful for going into the holiday. We are thankful uh, to you, our passionate listeners of the Waterflying podcast that keep coming back. We so much appreciate uh, uh, your loyalty to the show and all the listens. And uh, we're also thankful to our amazing extended family, that being our members and the dedicated core of volunteers, lifetime members, donors, and sponsors that help us, the Seaplane Pilots Association, achieve our mission goal of protecting and promoting the waterflying community. With that said, today we are speaking with Steve Williams. He is an SPA's lead field director in Maine, a board member, and a great friend and supporter of the organization. Steve, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. Well, great, uh, Steve. It's uh, great to be here. You know, I've been listening to these uh, podcasts since we uh, started them up, and it's great to uh, uh, participate in one. Yeah, so well, it's you. it's nice to finally have you on. We've been trying to engineer this for a while, so... Um, so topic of the day, uh, the, the legendary 185, uh, the Cessna 185 was produced from 1961 to 1985. It was derived from the Cessna 180, which was produced from 1953 to 1981. So there was a lot of overlap in the production cycle, uh, around 4,400, uh, uh, Cessna 185s were produced and just under 6,200 Cessna 180s were produced throughout their respective uh, production runs. The 185 uh, was powered either with 260 or 300 horsepower, while the Cessna 180s produced 230 horsepower. The main differences when you look at a 185 uh, or versus a 180 would be the size of the dorsal fin on the tail, cabin windows are a giveaway, seating configuration, so, but there are some things that uh, don't necessarily make that true. I understand there's a tail conversion kit for the 180. Is that right, Steve? Yeah, that's uh, that's correct. Uh, the uh, dorsal uh, fin from the uh, uh, main fuselage up to the uh, uh, vertical uh, tail uh, can be uh, uh, beefed up to uh, uh, re- resemble uh, a uh, 185. And uh, with this comes a, uh, a gross weight increase. So uh, that, that, the gross weight increase is what drives it for most owners to do that uh, conversion. 
Yeah, that's really good. And talking about gross weight, the gross weight of a 185 uh, was 3,350 pounds. And that was one of the big upgrade uh, that came along with the from the 180 to the 185. The 180 uh, came uh, initially at 2,650, uh, but then was eventually raised to 2,800 pounds. So about a 550 pound difference in gross weight from the factory between the 185 and the 180. Right, exactly. You know, and with the... Uh everything uh, as everything goes you know the operators that growth uh, weight uh, increase uh, that extra ability to carry cargo uh, resulted into uh, uh, more money they could make yeah 500 pounds is a lot when you're uh, going back in the bush in alaska or, or one of the numerous missions that the airplane's been used for so well uh, let's talk a little bit about the performance characteristics and the the specs on the airplane i think one of the big things uh, that people need to consider is the wingspan. So the factory uh, wingspan was 35 uh, feet, 10 inches. Um, now, I understand there's some things that could affect that for a potential owner as well. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, you uh, can get uh, wingtip uh, ex- extensions uh, to uh, uh, enhance performance. Uh, one of the things you have to be uh, uh, cautious about is uh, if you're a hangar owner or wherever you're going to hangar it, uh, just to make sure that it fits into your, into your hanger. I know my 40 foot door in my hanger will fit the, uh, my uh, stock wing, but, uh, my buddy's, uh, uh, wing extensions won't fit, won't fit through that hanger door. Wow. And a 40 foot, uh, hanger door is, is probably the most common configuration out there. So, uh, uh, that's really a, a pretty big consideration when someone's looking at, uh, the purchase of a 185 is uh, whether they can hanger it or have a hanger that will accommodate it. Yeah, exactly. You know, and uh, just with, as we work our way through this episode, just uh, remember when you're uh, planning and, and, and shopping for a, a sky wagon, uh, there's, there's an awful lot of information out there an awful lot of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, add-ons that can go to the aircraft uh, and do your homework and find out what you're what you're buying and figure out beforehand what you actually need. Yeah, and I would say, with the exception of a, a couple of the airplanes like the Super Cub, the 185 joins uh, probably the airplanes that have the most number of modifications available to to an airframe. So it really is amazing how many modifications are are available for a 185. So uh, length is uh, kind of a traditional length, uh, 25 feet, 9 inches. Uh, height, um, just under 13 feet, about 12 feet, 8 inches on amphibs. Does that sound about right, Steve? Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's correct, uh, about uh, just under 13 feet. I think mine is 12 feet, uh, nine, 9 inches, sitting on a pair of uh, fair, uh, 3,000 amphibs. Okay, so that's something else to consider. Uh, make sure you can get in the hangar door with a, a 13 fit. If you're getting over a, or going over a lip or anything, you're going to want a little bit of, or if you have a tail beacon, uh, something like that, uh, it's going to, uh, you're going to want to keep that in consideration. Uh, empty weight on wheels is about 1,750 pounds. Again, this is before all the mods and, and all the things that have done been done to modernize an airplane. And uh, about 2,100 pounds on amphibs. Um, that's, that's a lot of weight, 2,100 pounds, when you're trying to get it into a hangar. 
Uh, yeah, true. Uh, you know, we utilize a, a tug to get ours uh, in in and out of the uh, out of the hangar. Uh, the uh, other advantage of, of the tug is that uh, with it facing the aircraft, you can uh, see your wingtips, you can see your tail, uh, you can you can stay out of a lot of lot of trouble that that way. Uh, and when we're on, uh, uh, we operate our aircraft uh, on amphibs on wheels and on skis, on a, a hydraulic ski. And the hydraulic, uh, uh, the ski fittings uh, on the axles uh, give us another attachment point uh, for the uh, tow bar to be able to push it in and out of the hangar. Yeah, and that's something uh, that uh, we didn't talk about when we were doing the notes for the show was the amazing versatility of the aircraft. And you're a perfect example of that as you literally uh, will configure the airplane in all three configurations in the course of a normal year, uh, wheels, uh, skis, and uh, floats. Yeah, that's true. That's true, Steve. You know, we just pulled it off of uh, Amphib's uh about uh, three weeks ago, flew down to Florida to the member meeting uh, on wheels, and we're back up here in Maine, and uh, going to be going on to uh, the hydraulic skis here in another uh, three weeks. Wow, that's awesome! Yeah, it was quite a surprise. We when you pulled up here in Florida, I'm used to seeing the airplane standing tall on amphibs, and uh, uh, it it had lost a little bit of its height uh, on wheels. It was. Yeah, then I had my baby uh, baby carriage wheels, the 700 for the uh, hydraulic skis, which uh, uh, which a lot of people don't like the look of. But they <laughs> haven't found to put the 800s back on. Oh, okay. So let's talk about the power engine uh, IO520. Um, uh, good power plant uh, experience with the power plant. There are some upgrades uh, to bigger engines, uh, but that engine I believe produced either 260 or 300. Um, what can you tell me about the engine? Yeah, exactly that. You know, it's time limited to 300 horsepower, uh, and, uh, you back down on the, on the RPM and I believe it could be 285 at, at, at that point. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're good solid engines. Uh, and if you just treat them, treat them well, uh, fly them regularly, uh, they really, they'll, they'll also, if something's going to go amiss, it's going to talk to you beforehand. It's going to give you some indication. Just uh, pay attention to uh, uh, your temperatures, uh, and you should be in good shape. What's uh, the TBO on the 520? It is uh, 17, uh, 1,700 hours is what it is. Okay, awesome. And that, that's, once again, that's where the, that's where the operator, uh, they are... Uh, uh, for the commercial operator, you can fly them past the uh, uh, 1700 and uh, uh, they still will uh, give you uh, good service. And that prop can, or that engine can either drive a two bladed prop or a three bladed prop. Um, I think the, the two bladed 185s have quite a reputation for their uh, signature bark. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> we'll just say <laughs> they make uh, quite a. Quite an announcement as they depart, um, but uh, there's also some three-bladed options out there. I think you recently went through a propeller upgrade. Yeah, we upgraded to the uh, MT uh, three-bladed prop. Uh, our, uh, one of our operators, uh, Jimmy Strang up at Katad and Air, operated uh, that uh, same propeller on his uh, 206. And uh, whenever you get an uh, operator uh, raving about uh, a piece of equipment, then uh, you know it's a, a safe, safe bet. 
Uh, and it's uh, worked uh, extremely, extremely well for Nickel Leading Edge. Uh, uh, has uh, uh, made the uh, uh, erosion of the uh, of the aluminum on the, of the propeller uh, uh, a non non-issue. Yeah, Le- uh, those nickel leading edges. That was one of the big characteristics uh, on the Albatross propellers uh, that that we used to fly quite a bit. And uh, you know the the thing about the two bladed prop, I'm interested to know about. You know the longer props are really uh, advantageous in helping us get up on step, getting us up out of water. What's the experience with the shorter three-bladed prop? What's that uh, initial hole shot been like for you? It's uh, really the, uh, it's extremely, it's extremely well-performing propeller. Uh, you know, Steve, we did, we did two things. Usually you like to change one thing at once to sort of see what the results are. Uh, we actually changed two things at, at that time that we put the propeller on. The uh, first generation uh, Rip Air 3000 Amphib had uh, uh, had a strut assembly that uh, put it at a, a, the aircraft at a lower angle of the attack. While it went faster uh, in cruise, uh, its takeoff run was a little bit uh, longer. So we, uh, we changed over to uh, the... Uh, more modern uh, or the second generation uh, strut assembly, which got the aircraft off the water five miles an hour faster. Wow. So, but, we, but we lost about five knots in cruise. Okay. But I'd, I'd rather get off the water faster. Yeah. So. And I think most seaplane pilots would always give a little speed uh, for that uh, water performance getting out of the water. So uh, uh, usually that's a good trade off. Obviously, we don't fly seaplanes to go anywhere fast in most cases. So, <laughs> um, okay, let's talk about range. Uh, 720 nautical miles is what the book says for a land airplane. Uh, what's a realistic float plane range? And I, I guess this is also a subject to great interpretation because of all the mods and different configurations uh, available for the 185. Yeah, that's, you know, you know, my aircraft, it has ski fittings on it. Obviously, the uh, Amphib fittings, uh, you know, so it turned into, uh, turned out to be, you know, pretty, pretty draggy. You know, we have long range tanks, uh, 78 or 82 gallons, depending on uh, uh, which fill point you utilize. Uh, that gives us the range. That gives us, in terms of hours, at uh, about uh, 15 and a half gallons an hour. It gives us about uh, five and a half hours worth of fuel. And we're running 115 knots uh, on a space. So. Okay. So that's, uh, you said uh, 15 gallons an hour? Uh, yeah, 15. 15 and a half, 15 and a half to 16. We run our uh, aircraft uh, aircraft engine uh, uh, a little bit rich to help with the uh, help with the cooling. It uh, we were uh, trying to be aggressive leaning. We were uh, uh, burning the uh, uh, valve, and we went to we started uh, increasing the fuel flow, and that put a stop to that uh, that problem. Yeah, and what's that look like on uh, a takeoff? What's your fuel burn on takeoff? It is uh, in the neighborhood of uh, 23 gallons an hour. 23, wow, okay. Um, you know, honestly, for as much horsepower as you're putting out, when I compare that to the Super Cub, that's not bad. I mean, I'm all the way up in the 14 gallons plus an hour uh, in the Super Cub, so that's not bad at all. 
uh, on takeoff. So uh, cruise speed, uh, land planes are uh, kind of booked out at 145 knots is what they say from the manufacturer. Uh, what's realistic on a float plane? Realistic is, uh, you know, 120 knots, you know, 115, 120 knots uh, on the Amphib. Yeah, and, and that's a pretty honest uh, cruise speed for a, an Amphib seaplane, really. I mean, that's if, if you can squeak out 120 knots in a seaplane, you're, you're actually moving along pretty, pretty good. Yeah, I, you know, it works well for us. The missions that we, uh, that we fly, we're uh, on the water uh, uh, one day, we're uh, onto an, another uh, land uh, airport uh, the, next, the next day. So the, uh, the, the, the uh, utility of the uh, Amphib uh, works extremely, extremely well for us here. Yeah, and so looking at a typical mission in Maine, you should be able to get pretty much anywhere in Maine within two and a half hours and at, at the extreme. Yeah, you pretty much can go uh, uh, the length of the state in, in, in that time. You know, and the other thing to remember with the, uh, if, with the, uh, uh, the Amphibs is that uh, about the same time we bought our Amphibs in, in 2007, uh, the uh, the uh, state uh, was uh, changed over to self-serve fuel, and and being able to drop in 24 hours a day, pick up uh, you know pick up an hour and a half worth of fuel, uh, it, it really helps utilize the uh, uh, really helps utilize the the, the the load that we're carrying in the aircraft, and also uh, uh, makes uh, makes things a lot safer. You never you never uh, cutting it close in, in regard to a, a destination and the fuel we have on board. Yeah, a very passionate discussion, one that we've had on water flying on this podcast before is the discussion of straits versus amphibs. And, uh, you know, there is uh, considerations for each, but again, uh, having owned both straight floats and amphibs myself, uh, boy, there's just so much versatility and the options are, are just really open up with the amphibs. So, yeah, that's, a, that's true. So uh, climb rate, uh, book says 970 feet a minute. That sounds a little bit optimistic to me. Uh, what's a what's a realistic 185 climb rate? I'd knock a couple hundred uh, uh, feet per minute off that number. You know, if, you're, if, you're, if I'm seeing 700 and uh, you know, climbing out at my VY airspeed of 95 knots, you know, I'm with a with a uh, with a at growth weight, I'm I'm very happy that day. Of course, as density altitude comes into play, you're gonna that's gonna that's gonna bleed away on you. Yeah, and again, the the big uh, unknown there. It's hard to talk about some of these numbers uh, because of the loading and the the uh, density altitude and water conditions and everything else just getting off on. You know, there's so many factors that affect this when it comes to seaplanes. But uh, let's say between 600 and 700 feet would be a decent climb rate and a, like, that you can expect in a 185. Yeah, I'd agree. Okay. So uh, stall speed, 50 knots, uh, pretty slow. And again, uh, there's some probably some pretty radical mods you can do uh, on the 185 to get a couple of knots off of that. But 50 knots is pretty respectable uh, for a stall speed uh, when you come in for approach. Yeah, I on the on the. The stock aircraft, of course, you you have the you know things like the Robinson stole and the, and the Bush stole uh, uh, kits that have been added to uh, 
uh, a lot of a lot of the aircraft, and uh, gives you a nice safe uh, safe margin uh, in regards to the, the the envelope that you fly the aircraft in. Yeah, um, yeah, that's one of the things that really impresses me about the aircraft is that stall speed uh, for the size of the aircraft. Um, useful right. load. Yeah. What? Go go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. But- yeah, let me add one thing. Uh, the other thing that you have with the uh, with the, the one eighty five is that the brakes are extremely powerful on the on the land plane, and uh, uh, touch down at sixty and stomp on the brakes, and you can land that airplane extremely short. The amphib, uh, the brakes are uh, are not as not not as as powerful, and uh, if you're landing on on grass, uh, they have a tendency to uh, uh, slide over the over the runway yeah that's one of those finer details that's not talked about enough probably uh the 185 is i mean it it just uh has amazing stopping capability on wheels but like all amphibs um i don't think it's unique to the 185 um you know it's not uncommon to if for you not to be able to hold the aircraft still at full power because there's just not enough brakes to to achieve that and that also translates to um, your stopping ability, not only while you're rolling on rollout, uh, but that skidding effect because you're, you have smaller wheels than the land plane, especially the larger conversions that are available. Um, it's not uncommon to uh, kind of skate on uh, grass runways if they have a little moisture on them or even if they're dry, quite honestly. Yeah, exactly. Well, brakes are, brakes are heavy. You know, so single single puck versus two puck uh, brakes. You know, uh, obviously the two pucks are going to be heavier. Yeah. Okay. So useful load. Uh, again, uh, this is going to vary depending on the way the aircraft is set up. But what, as a, as an owner operator, what do you see realistically um, being a useful load for the one eighty five on amphibious floats? Boy, it can range. Uh, you know, anywhere from. 950 pounds up to up to about uh, you know 1400 pounds a lot just depends on what the aircraft has for equipment uh, um, you know the uh, uh, as people redo panels uh, uh, weight comes out uh, uh, additional radios go back go back in uh, so uh, you know once again look at the model uh, look at the model number if it's going on to floats or uh, or amphibs uh, Take a look at what the uh, uh, float manufacturers can uh, can give you for uh, uh, for growth weight. Yeah. So uh, again, we'll just use uh, we'll just use nine hundred and fifty maybe as a guide uh, for what people can expect. Again, that depends on on uh, uh, some unique things about the airplane. Uh, takeoff performance time and distance to land uh, um, on water uh, distance on land and water. Um, so again, takeoff performance for seaplanes, generally I'm most interested in a time calculation because that lets me know how far I'm going down the ro- uh, water, but what is that, uh, distance on land and water in your airplane as a, just as for the sake of conversation? Well, if you wanted on, on the water, uh, on, on the amphibs, uh, uh, over a 50 foot obstacle, you'd be, you know, the book says 1700, uh, feet. In reality, uh, if I'm on a pond here in, in Maine, I'm looking for uh, three quarters of a of a mile of a of a takeoff run, uh, and uh, if it's and then I don't 
overly worry about the obstacles, I overly worry about the terrain and the obstacles that I'm climbing out over. If the pond's smaller than that, then I got to get creative in regards to uh, uh, my takeoff run. I might need a uh, uh, to do a circle on the on the staff and then take off that way. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's not going to get you into the tightest bonds without a little work. Uh, but uh, again, um, realistically, it's going to get you into most places you need to go pretty comfortably. Uh, so, uh, so it'll get you in there. You may just not get out with that same <laughs> load that you took in. And and you can always shuttle. This is another conversation that I cover in my uh, safety seminars quite often, especially when we're talking to Alaska pilots, because, uh, you know, there is a sensibility about shuttling stuff away because there may be a larger lake 10 or 15 minutes away. And uh, it is a good strategy sometimes to consider not trying to get it all out in one run because you do have an option to go to another body of water that's a short distance away that you can operate with a lot greater safety margin. So why not make a shuttle run, take a partial load, uh, and just do two short runs, and then go to a lake where you have lots of water and, and lots of potential to clear the obstacles? Yeah, well said. That's a, that's a, a good rule to follow. So one of the things that really impresses me about the 185 when it comes to the owner-operator experience is the fact that the 180, uh, 185 uh has a amazing type club association in the uh 180 the Cessna 180 185 association which can be found at skywagons.org that's skywagons plural.org they are an amazing resource uh for owners and operators it's a very passionate club and um it's a club that uh we've engaged with over the years and I've I've really had a uh, high regards for uh, what's uh, what can you tell us about uh, some of the resources that people can find uh, through the uh, type club? Well, type, that particular type club is, is, is great. We, uh, we've owned our aircraft 26 years and uh, we met up with the club for the, of course I immediately joined when I, when I bought one, uh, but uh, uh, met up with uh, club members at the, uh, the first uh, sun fund that flew to, flew into and uh and ever since then it's been it's been uh, a great experience uh they have uh, uh destinations that they fly that they fly to uh they're great resources in regards to uh some of the spcs that they that they have uh some of the technical uh information that they've published over the years in their uh, in their newsletters is uh, is, is very very useful and the membership uh, is, is extremely knowledgeable. It's rare do you find a Skywagon owner that doesn't know it, uh, his or her aircraft uh, inside or out. Yeah. And I think another thing that impresses me with uh, 185, uh, 180 owners is they typically uh, become very loyal to their airplane. When did you purchase your airplane? We bought ours uh, 26 years ago back in uh, 1996. I had, uh, uh, we had sold a Citabria that we, uh, that we owned and, uh, and then I was looking for a float plane and we went over to uh, Rockland, Maine and looked at, uh, uh, two, uh, two, uh, super cubs that had been used for fish, uh, fish spotting, uh, and that they were badly corroded. And my buddy went with me, uh, beat up on me all the way home saying you could buy a four place airplane for that. 
uh, money. And just then, <laughs> a, a uh, sky wagon flew across in front of us, and light bulbs, you know, sort of went off in my head. And uh, two days later, I had found uh, found this aircraft sitting on the riverbank uh, up in uh, Lincoln, Maine. It was on Aqua thirty one nineties at that time, uh, but it just turned out to be a, a fantastic aircraft. Wow, that's awesome. And again, so you hear a lot of talk about your forever home uh, in society, but uh, what I see with people with 185s, uh, with the owner-operators, is quite honestly, when they get into a 185, it becomes their forever airplane, and they just uh, go on a, a very long journey enjoying the airplane. Yeah, some uh, some folks, uh, you know, trade them. Uh, I just happen to be one of these people that tend to buy something and hang on to it and take care of it. Yeah, that's great. How many hours do you fly in the airplane a year? We fly, I, uh, my wife's a pilot, commercial pilot also. Uh, personally, I fly just about 100 hours uh, a year uh, on that uh, on that airplane. Yeah. And what are some of the mission profiles? I know they're very diverse. You and I have done quite a few in them uh, in your airplane. So uh, what are some of the typical mission profiles that you use your uh, Cessna 185 for? Well, we have a, uh, we have a camp uh, outside Millinocket, Maine. It's a, uh, we base out of Wiscasset, Maine. So that's a 100-mile trip for us to get to our camp. Uh, can't uh, drive to it. Uh, you either have to go in by, uh, by canoe or go in by float plane. Um, we uh, have a uh, rental property up in uh, Bethel, Maine, so we're going back and forth to uh, uh, maintain that as well as as well as utilize it. Um, we main we do uh, pretty uh, both my wife and I are, are pretty hardcore uh, fish, fishermen in the uh, uh, both in the winter and in the uh, in the springtime. So that's uh, always a good uh, good mission. Uh, we maintain a uh, we're uh, involved heavily with the Maine Aeronautics Association, which is the Maine Pilots uh, Group. Uh, we maintain a bicycle program at uh, three airports uh, in the state. So uh, uh, often we're uh, transporting uh, uh, bikes back and forth uh, between those locations. So backseat yeah. out and uh, backseat out and uh, and uh, uh, three uh, three airport uh, three three mountain bikes into the back of the airplane. Oh, that's awesome. So, I mean, it literally is a, uh, enjoyable pleasure machine, but it's getting you out to your fish camp for weekends, uh, out of town and, uh, you're using it for business. And then, uh, I think what you deserve a lot of credit for, because you spend, you know, quite a bit of time and, and money and resources doing it every year is all the goodwill, uh, that, uh, Lisa and yourself do for a, the aviation community in many different ways uh, across many different organizations. Um, so uh, thank you for all the time and energy and, and use of your aircraft for, for that mission. Um, so let's talk about, you know, things that people need to be aware of on the 185 and maybe some, some ideas uh, for uh, people that would be considering uh, buying the 185. One of the biggest things I think that we need to talk about um, is the tail AD, and we're kind of on um, a precipice of, a, of the witching hour here for that AD. Talk to us about what that AD is, why it's important, and what people need to know if they're considering buying a 185 or they own a 185, uh, the clock is ticking. 
Yeah, exactly, Steve. Uh, December 7th of uh, last year, 2020, they, uh, they, they uh, came out with an AD. The, principally, what we were concerned about was uh, uh, cracks in the, uh, uh, the horizontal uh, stabilizer, uh, as well as the tail cone area. Um, they gave us uh, uh, oh, 100 hours, uh, 100 hours or 12 months, uh, whichever was the, the longest uh, to, uh, uh, to comply with the AB inspection and, and repair. Um, the inspection can, can range from uh, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of taking about, uh, you know, Four to four to eight hours. Uh, needless to say, if a repair is uh, needed, it's going to be a little, it's going to be longer. Uh, there are repair kits out there. Uh, you need to shop around, become uh, familiar with what you have for uh, uh, parts and availability. Yeah, and I would recommend going to someone who knows or works on 185s uh, on a regular basis because they can save you a lot of money. There are some tips and tricks on how to, number one, accomplish the AD and then install the repair um, if needed, which generally it is. I think uh, from what I've seen, most of the aircraft have had some kind of cracking associated with the inspection. Uh, So go to someone who is highly familiar with the 185 because not only are you going to number one, identify, but also number two, get a corrective action and probably spend less money in the process getting uh, a good fix on the airplane if it's required. Yeah, that's an, that's an important part. You know, go to somebody who's uh, uh, familiar with the uh, repair. And, it, and, the, and the inspection can be done uh, with a, uh, uh, by video with a, a small small uh, camera. Uh, and that's, an, that's an option that's given to you. Yeah, I recently saw some good videos on describing exactly uh, what to look for and some of the different uh, common failure points associated with it. So, again, there is some good information out there on that. Um, Pre-buy, Steve, talk to us about what people should consider on uh, a pre-buy of a 185. Well, beyond what what you would do with a a normal aircraft, uh, uh, just making sure that uh, everything works. Uh, and uh, or discover what doesn't work and make an adjustment on, on the price. Uh, you know they they are uh, uh, conventional gear aircraft. They are subject to uh, ground loops or going up over their nose. Uh, sometimes the repairs. Uh, sometimes that's not clearly stated in the logbook. But if you're careful and look at any repairs that were done, you might figure out that if they're replacing the windshield. Uh, and a repair to the nose pole that is probably uh, probably been, it's probably been up on its nose. Um, gearbox, uh, just uh, somebody who's once again familiar uh, can can look into those gearboxes and, and, and look for any 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 damage. Uh, corrosion's a, a big issue. You know these airplanes were uh, so the Skywagons were were built starting in 1961 and 1961 and the and the 180s uh, uh, start uh, uh, almost 10 years before that, so uh, it's a long time out in the out in the element. Uh, yeah, that's and the nature of the aircraft, you know, the 185 really lends itself to heavy bush flying and commercial use. Um, so a lot of these airplanes have been rode hard. 
and they're a great airplane. And, and because they're such a great airplane, they've been used hard in a lot of cases. So uh, there's not as many hangar queens as you would find with some other types of aircraft necessarily. So uh, just because it's shiny, has fresh paint, doesn't mean that there's uh, not gremlins hiding underneath uh, that need to be uh, found on that pre-buy. Yeah, exactly. And of course, there's the engine and, and the propeller also that you want to pay attention to. Uh, I tend to look for an aircraft uh, that has uh, been flown regularly. Uh, I think that's much, much better for the uh, for the engine and, and uh, keeps the uh, gremlins uh, at, at bay. <laughs> so overall, uh, you've got quite a bit of experience here at CFI. Uh, you've been flying airplanes for a long time, and I know you fly a great variety of airplanes. Uh, what can you tell us about the overall performance of the 185 on floats uh, compared to other aircraft? Well, it's, uh, you know, certainly there with the 300 uh, horse getting you up off the, off the water. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly exhilarating. Uh, and uh, you know it gets the it gets the job done at the end of the day. Uh, you know you're very you're very satisfied. Um, you know when you're when you're you know looking to get involved with these with these 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 aircraft, there's a lot to be said about uh, uh, on floats uh, learning uh, in a low powered aircraft. Uh, one where you really learn to, to finesse the aircraft when it's on the step. Find that find that sweet spot. Uh, learning how to turn it. Uh, uh, in a uh, strong wind uh, uh, from going upwind to, to downwind. Uh, you know, the 300 horse can pull you out of some problems, but also just just really knowing how to, to even finesse the, uh, 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 the aircraft is, 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 is extremely beneficial. Yeah. One of my impressions of the airplane as well, that 300 horsepower, really you feel the power i mean that's that's something that really stands out to me is is when you put the the uh, throttle in you you feel the the power of the airplane but it also to me is a really stable aircraft and it it flies i i would say i my perception of in flight and on the water is it flies like a heavy airplane despite having that that power uh, and the the heaviness I say that in a in a complimentary way from the standpoint that it becomes a very stable platform, um, and it I think it flies very well, and I like that feel. Uh, fly, flying the little sporty Super Cub that I own, uh, there's a dramatic difference in the way the aircraft feels, and I I do think it it flies like a stable heavy aircraft, and it probably feels heavier at times than than it is. That would be just my as a non owner operator one of my impressions of the airplane. No, it's very stable. Uh, we fly our uh, 185 uh, in instrument conditions uh, quite a bit, and it's a real, it's a real pleasure, pleasure to fly. Uh, trims up uh, nicely. We flew it for years without an autopilot. We just added an autopilot a couple of couple of years ago. Um, but uh, the utility we get out for the missions that we do, the the, the need to be at a location uh, early in the morning. Um, uh, you know, being able to fly instruments just makes it uh, make, makes our life a lot uh, a lot easier. Yeah. I, again, I think that's a positive attribute for the airplane. 
Uh, so there's a whole variety. It pretty much takes everything that's out there when it comes to floats. If I'm not mistaken, uh, 185, we know, goes on the Whip Air floats. Uh, Aeroset has an offering uh, for the 185 as well. Uh, PK, uh, one of the more popular floats uh, for the 185. But there's also some, some legacy floats out there with Aqua and Edo floats that may be available uh, for the aircraft as well. Yep, exactly. They're they're out there. You know, the the, the older floats, uh, you know, say the Edos, you know, at times their parts are uh, are a uh, issue. Uh, but uh, you know, those those three leading manufacturers, you know, PK, Aeroset, with there, they produce a very very fine product and 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 support it very well. Also, yeah, and I think you're fl- you're flying uh, whip floats, correct? Uh, yep, whip uh, whip three thousand. Okay, and I've flown your airplane. I've flown them on Aerosets. I've also flown them on PKs, and of course, PK is located right there in Maine, uh, where you are, or just up the road uh, from you. Yep, up in uh, Lincoln, Maine, and I've been able to uh, fly uh, there. Uh, Pat McGowan, who's the president of uh, PK, I've been able to fly his aircraft uh, a number of times. I went out to uh, Oshkosh with him uh, this past year. Yeah, I have not flown Aquas. I have flown Edos, actually, come to think of it. Uh, a manual wastegate turbocharged 185 I used to fly out on the West Coast. Uh, we used to go in the high Sierras and up to Lake Tahoe. So uh, I have flown the Edos as well, come to think of it. I have not flown the Aquas. Uh, those are the only ones I haven't flown. Yep, I, I think you may be mistaken. Aqua did not make a uh, Amphib, Steve. They yeah, they the, straight floats. Yeah, straight I'm just talking floats. float options for the aircraft. Uh, okay. So the there's five different manufacturers that have made floats uh, for the 185. Well, there's also if you listen to that, there's also a, a cap float. That oh, that's right, made. cap. Yeah, I forgot that, all about uh, them. That's awesome. That, Thank you. That, that people uh, that people really like because uh, it's fast through the air. And uh, their uh, pointy nose on the cap floats. Right. <laughs> their kind of trademark. <laughs> So uh, that's great. So literally, I mean, six different manufacturers have made floats for the 185 in either Amphib or straight configuration. So I guess that's about as big a selection as you could uh, ever have uh, on an aircraft. And it really, again, uh, is a testament to the prolific nature of the 185 and how many were produced and how popular they were on uh, floats as a seaplane. So uh, I think the fact that there's so many option is, uh, options is a real testament to that. So uh, let's uh, talk about some of the cons. Do you see any real cons of the aircraft? Uh, a couple come to mind for me, but I don't think they outweigh my pros, but I think they're worthy of discussion. Well, I think, you know, you know, entering the entry, um, you know, the need to uh, that basically being driven by the, by, by the insurance, uh, which uh, we've all been, been experiencing. Uh, uh, you know, if you enter the, uh, you know, enter ownership with, uh, uh, low, uh, conventional gear time, uh, low amphib time, you're going to be paying a premium in, uh, uh, insurance ex- expenses. Um, you know, some people think the con is, uh, is the, uh, would be the, the, the fuel burn. But you know the aircraft are fast through the air, and they, they carry a uh, carry a, a big big load. Uh, so it really really makes it uh, makes it up in, in that category. 
I think that um, you, it depends on how you're measuring it. If you're looking at cost per pound or po- cost per mile, uh, that fuel burn really is offset by both. And again, that's a testament to why the airplane is so popular with commercial operators. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like the, uh, you know, I like the, uh, the aluminum, uh, the, the full metal aircraft versus the, uh, versus the uh, fabric covered uh, aircraft, you know, my aircraft. 60 years old and, uh, you know, versus uh, a 75-year-old cub that uh, we have that uh, had multiple uh, uh, fabric uh, uh, replacements on it. Yeah, that's, uh, again, that's amazing. I own a 47 Cessna 120, you know, with most of the original metal on it as well. So uh, that's something. Cost of op- uh, cost of purchase, though. Uh, let's talk about the cost of the uh, aircraft. I think that is a potential con for people uh, and worthy of discussion. I think it's still a good value uh, based on the utility of the aircraft and everything it's going to do for you. Uh, but they are getting up there in price. Uh, so just looking at the market space, uh, doing some research for the episode, I found the most expensive aircraft, oddly enough, the least expensive aircraft and the most expensive aircraft were both Canadian registered airplanes uh, and a dramatic difference between the aircraft. But I uh, found a 1981 185, 793 hours total time and 50 hours since new on the engine. It had a full Monty uh, 750 panel with G5s. Uh, very modern avionics had whip air 3000 amphibs and that one was listed at 699 well that's a uh, pretty pretty cheap uh, price tag you know <laughs> i've i've seen uh, uh i've seen several aircraft uh, being being purchased that uh, uh substantially below that uh of course as, as we all know who 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 uh buy and sell things, uh, the word of mouth is the best, best way to, uh, track something, track something down and, uh, find yourself a, a fair price, a fair price on, on, on that. You know, if you look, you know, it's also, it's also the timing. If you look back to, uh, uh some of the times in this country where there've been, uh, recessions, uh, uh, there've been some really good prices on, on aircraft. So you can hold off put the money in the bank, you know, <laughs> be ready, ready to pull the trigger when, when prices when fall. Downturn. Yeah, right. we know exactly. We know prices are red hot on the aircraft right now, but just to counter that, I, you know, the least expensive aircraft we could find, um, was $200,000. Uh, it was a 1974 with 6,400, uh, hours total time. It did have a fresh overhaul, uh, which for the price was was pretty impressive. Uh, it had an incredibly basic panel, and it was on those Edo 2790 Amphibs, um, which there again uh, could be a consideration when purchasing the aircraft. Edo still supports them, um, uh, but uh, those are an older style float. Uh, so again, uh, the range that we saw was $200,000 uh, for more of a, uh, well, an airplane with a solid engine for sure, and um, at two hundred thousand dollars, and then went all the way up to six ninety nine, seven hundred thousand dollars. So a half a million dollar price difference in between the range of the aircraft that I could find for sale. But I would say the median price for a decent airplane, somewhere between three fifty and four fifty, would be a good target price for what someone could 
expect to pay and you might be able to find a good airplane for 270 to 300 ish um does that seem about fair when we're talking about price of the aircraft that people can expect well I, I, once again i've seen some uh aircraft that get purchased uh in, in the last year for, for less money than that you know one thing we, we might want to talk about here steve is is uh the, the hull values that uh that the skywagon owners have their aircraft insured for you know in in, in uh, a friend of mine who recently had a uh, uh who had a, uh, an incident uh, uh, and had an aircraft uh, uh, substantial work done to it. Uh, uh, just spent some, uh, uh, you know, says that, uh, you know, the aircraft's worth $100,000 in part alone. So uh, you need to, you need to make sure that, you know, if you want to replace your aircraft, that you have some, uh, that, that to begin with, you have your aircraft insured at the proper amount. Yeah, that's uh, again what uh, part of what's driving those insurance uh, prices. Uh, okay, enough about the cons because uh, I think the pros vastly outweigh the cons as long as you can afford to get into the aircraft. Uh, what are the pros? It's a workhorse. Uh, I mean, simply put, it is a workhorse. The Skywagon was a great name for the aircraft because that's exactly what it is. It's uh, you know I call it the SUV of the sky. <laughs> so it's. It is a, a great airplane. Um, basically, it's going to get you uh, and everything you can put in it where you need or want to go. And uh, realistically, as much as you should be carrying as an owner or operator, uh, what are the pros? I mean, do you agree with that statement? And, and what are potentially some of the other pros? Other, I mean, there, there's just so many, it's hard to stop. <laughs> Just the utility of the aircraft, you know, just, the, you know, the commercial operators or the law enforcement officer, op, operators, uh, you know, game wardens, uh, you know, uh, are just, uh, you know, utilizing these aircraft and flying in them, you know, five, five days, five days a week. Uh, and they just do the job and, uh, and, you know, for the, uh, you know, to do the job in another fashion is it would just be uh, extremely expensive. And you know, they're they're, they're extremely maneuverable. Uh, you slow them up to uh, uh, eighty miles uh, eighty miles an hour, not to flaps. And uh, just if you let us do surveys or in search and rescue, it's uh, just a really nice stable platform to work off of. Yeah, and I can tell you from experience, uh, California Highway Patrol operated a fleet of 185s on wheels uh, for a long time. Uh, it was a very controversial sale when they moved to 206s. I think a lot of civilians picked up some really nice 185s that were maintained by the state for a, a very good price uh, at the time. And I think that the pilots that I've talked to that that fly for California Highway Patrol were not necessarily uh, uh, happy with the switch because uh, the 185 was kind of an airplane that was a, a joy to fly from a uh, agency perspective and i we we know that maine is flying uh maine fish and wildlife is flying uh 185s as is minnesota and several other states are operating 185s on floats uh which again uh, both the 180 and 185 were produced in military variants uh, they're still flown by a couple of militaries around the world uh again i think that's a huge testament to the versatility of the aircraft from uh, missionary missions, uh, doing remote missionary work, uh, to the military role to, as you said, search and rescue. 
Yep. And there are people out there that are shops that are rebuilding these aircraft and pretty much making them uh, brand brand new. Yeah, that's great. So uh, have have we failed uh, to cover anything on the 185 uh, in our discussion today? I think we've done a pretty good job about uh, about covering things. You know, we didn't uh, uh, really dive into too much about uh, about uh, techniques uh, techniques for flying that, but we can leave that uh, leave that for for another day. Yeah, I think that's a a great place to uh, have another episode and to invite you back uh, for a discussion on one eighty five specific operational. Uh, uh, methods, uh, how to operate the airplane. And, and I think that would, I would welcome you back. So thank you for volunteering just now. <laughs> well, you know where to find me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what, what is your favorite memory uh, or experience in your 185? Oh gosh. It's like the last, last one. When we, uh, I just saw you a week ago down in, uh, down in Florida and we, we visited folks on the way home. And as we, uh, uh, and as we, uh, we came out of South Carolina on uh, Saturday, uh, about nine, nine o'clock, picked up a, uh, picked up the, uh, uh, tailwinds from a, from a high that was sitting on the Eastern seaboard and, and made it uh, back to Maine in six and a half hours. But as we, uh, it had gotten dark on us and as, uh, we, uh, passed over Portland, Maine, the, uh, uh the full moon, uh, 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 rose and it was blood red. Oh, and, that's awesome! Uh, and it was just you had the you know light to Portland below. You had this this, this big blood red uh, moon in front of you, and it just was like what a perfect flight that day. Yeah, that's oh, that's great. What an awesome story! One of the more memorable things I can think of, not even flying the one eighty five, was uh, when I picked up the Super Cub and was flying it home from Maine. Uh, along the shoreline, I had never been through Boston airspace, and uh, we were skirting under the Boston airspace along the shoreline, and um, looked down on my knee pad uh, on foreflight, and uh, heard you on the radio and saw you flying right over me, and it was totally uh, uncoordinated. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, exactly, not uh, not planned. I was coming back from uh, a Aopa uh, town. Town meeting, uh, I believe is what they called them, uh, and had uh, uh, represented the SBA that uh, that day. <laughs> that was awesome. Completely unplanned. <laughs> it's good to see a friend in the sky in this 185. So, uh, and and you've been very generous. We've got to enjoy uh, your airplane flying it around Maine. Uh, I look always look forward to coming up there, and look forward to many more adventures with you and and the airplane and. Uh, thanks to Lisa for your support of your your hobby and your hobbies and your passions, <laughs> because it always takes a supportive uh, partner uh, to make it happen as well. Well, as you know, she's uh, uh, she is uh, uh, gung ho when it comes to aviation. You know, being president of uh, Maine's uh, Aeronautics Association, and uh, uh, and she's uh, you know when she discovered that. Uh, uh, she wasn't. She was upset when we sold the uh, uh, the Satabria that we that we had. But when she discovered a, a full size cooler to go into the 185, took a took a, a, a different different approach. And <laughs> and now she has a now she has her own Satabria with a with another lady. So she's she's, she's quite content. No, oh, that's awesome. You two have been an amazing force, uh, again, not only in Maine, but around the country for your passion for aviation and all the time and energy and uh, generosity that you give. 
So uh, thank you again uh, for that. Steve, um, I really have to thank you for taking the time and for everything you do for uh, SPA as a field director. You're also an active, active volunteer. You serve on our board. You're a very active donor. Um, Thank you to you and Lisa for all that you do uh, for SPA and, and the aviation community overall. Well, uh, Steve, thank you for that. And, and likewise, you know, the, the, the effort uh, you and, uh, and, and Mary put, put into the SBA, it, it, uh, uh, you, uh, you and I both don't work a 40-hour work week. Uh, so <laughs> I'm, I'm well aware of that. So. But we do it with a smile on our face and, and always with the intent of making it better for everyone. So, uh, you know, it's nice to have partners that, that have those same values. So, uh, again... Uh, but also, I, I want to take time to thank you as we close out the show. Thank you, our listeners, for making this podcast such a success. We've been going a little over a year now. Uh, we've had, we're approaching very quickly 35,000 listens. We've done over 60 episodes uh, and running. It's been a tremendous joy and uh, a great process. So please, if you enjoy the show, number one, thank you for listening, uh, but share it with your friends. Uh, what a great Thanksgiving way. Hey, by the way, you might want to take some time over the long holiday weekend to listen to Waterflying Podcast. Uh, email us your comments and the topics you would like us to cover because the show is yours. We do it for you and you can email those uh, comments and topics to CSR, Charlie Sierra Romeo at seaplanes, plural, seaplanes.org. Steve, I'm looking forward to having you on future episodes to talk about the operational uh, characteristics of the 185, some some methods of operation. Uh, We have a lot to talk about as field directors and as a board member. Uh, So thank you, uh, and I look forward to having you back. And until next time, happy Thanksgiving, and tune in to next week's Water Flying uh, for another exciting episode. Thanks, guys. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School Directory and a calendar of seaplane events not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org. Join our community and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.